Bill, Bill, the science guy. Bill, 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 Bill. I'm ready. We're gonna have all the food. We're probably gonna barbecue. Lay it all out. He's bringing out the bugle, ladies and gentlemen. It's gonna be a big, big night. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, coming to you as always from Vienna, Austria, right in the center of Europe. And I am joined as always by my trusty colleague, David Clement, who's hanging out in there in the grand metropolis of Toronto, Ontario. David, sir, how goes it? Uh, it is going. It's going. No complaints. The weather is starting to, to turn. We're, uh, it's getting a little colder here, which is not good because that means that the actual cold temperatures are fast approaching. Um, so couple that with the pandemic and things can get pretty depressing. But other than that, I'm good. No complaints. Well, luckily no complaints. to uh, lift our spirits, uh, we've got, uh, we, we decided to hook in uh, one of our trusty colleagues, someone that we've, uh, we've spoken about his work. Uh, we've spoken about him as a person, as a giant. Uh, I wanted to introduce the senior policy analyst at the Consumer Choice Center, Bill the Machine Vietz. Hey, Bill, welcome to Talk Radio. Well, th- thank you for having me, and, and thank you for finally, finally having somebody on the show who speaks proper English. So uh, it's a good wow. addition. There we go. There's a guy who, uh, who knows, how to, he knows how to spell labor. All right. I mean, that, those are bold words coming from a guy who's not from a real country, but we'll let it slide. All right. For our <laughs> yes, for our listeners to know, uh, Bill is from the nation of Luxembourg, but I think Bill, you've been camped out um, for some odd reason in uh, in Turkey, far east. Uh, you've been off in the old Roman Empire. How's it going over there? Exactly. I'm in Istanbul. Um, Turkey actually allows everybody to enter, so people who want to do holidays in Turkey can actually much recommended. Uh, so you can easily fly in. Not exactly sure what your conditions are going to be when you return because. Turkey is still considered a high-risk uh, area. And, um, of course, if you're really into social distancing, this is not your place to be. It's a city of about 16 million people, but it was built for three, so uh, very crowded. Wow. Yeah, and I don't know how, how the bruises on your body will feel after you get beaten by security agents for being a journalist or something, but <laughs> definitely cool that you've got some experience there. So, Bill, it's great to have you on. I think um, we've uh, obviously referenced a lot of your writing on this program um, for, for everyone who would like to read more of Bill's stuff, we'll link to that on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. And uh, you can follow his tweets at Wirtz, W-I-R-T-Z-B-I-L-L. Um, so we've got a lot of things going on in the week. Bill, I wanted to highlight some of your, your work and your writing and uh, just wanted to sort of give a better introduction to our audience here. You know, what have you been working on, writing on, um, and actually, if you could highlight some of the American publications, too, because I know we have a lot of American listeners here on the radio, and uh, your name and pen uh, have appeared in a good number of publications. So uh, let us know a little bit about you. Well, so in the, in the last weeks and months, I've been working a lot on agriculture. So um, I actually just conducted an, a little interview for one of the upcoming uh, Consumer Choice radio shows. Um, for those who know a bit about agriculture, you'll note that it's very different in Europe. In Europe, 
we're very, very uh, anxious of all changes. So when it comes to chemicals or genetic engineering, everybody dislikes it here in Europe. And this has led many politicians to, um, to, uh, to outlaw uh, technological innovation. So while in Canada and the United States, you guys are way more involved when it comes to uh, making better food uh, also for the environment, using less water and having more crop yield. In Europe, we increasingly have activists who want us to farm the way our, our ancestors did 100 years ago. And I think that's very unfortunate. It's not innovation-based, it's not innovation-driven, and it's very problematic. So I'm currently working on a, a, a policy paper on sustainability. Sustainability is the big word. It's difficult to define exactly what people mean by it. Essentially, it's supposed to mean um, not overusing resources and leaving behind a system for our children that is still usable. Uh, but that also presumes that we cannot overcome the problems of today with modern technology. It believes that agriculture is the stagnant way and we need to go back to peasant farming because everything in nature is good. But everything in nature is not good. If you've ever eaten food and you've gotten, uh, you've gotten food poisoning, you, you ought to know. If you have food in your fridge and it has mold on it, don't eat it because that's actually toxins that form on your food. So this is some of the issues that I, that I focus on um, uh, in terms of agriculture, because I mean, what better consumer issue than, than the food we eat every day, right? Yeah, sure. yeah, good, good point. On, on the note of organic farming, for our listeners, can you maybe help um, extrapolate on what it would look like if the world were to actually fully go organic or get rid of um, these modern practices or, or GMO foods and things like that, how, what would the impact be if we were to go that route? So there's actually a good study on this. They did a study in, in Wales and in England where they, where they looked at the scenario, if we went 100% organic, what would happen? And they that not only would we, be, would we be considerably less efficient, so we would have less output, meaning higher prices, uh, everybody who buys organic food knows this. It's actually a bit more expensive. Um, but also we would actually emit more uh, carbon dioxide emissions because uh, a lot of the food we'd need would have to be imported from other countries. Um, so so, so this, is, this is a big problem and actually contradicts much of what people believe about organic food. So there's, there's a couple of misconceptions. Organic food, first of all, does use pesticides. So if you buy organic food, you don't buy pesticide free. One of the main pesticides used in organic farming is actually copper sulfate, which is very, very bad for the soil. Um, and, and again, organic food is not better for the environment in any way. There's been, I mean, it, it's definitely been good marketing. I mean, if you go to the supermarket, it looks very nice, nicely packed and so on, but it's actually fairly deceiving. Um, and, and now the European Union wants to go from as little as 5% of organic production to 25%. Now, can you just imagine what this means for farmers if people don't actually buy more organic food, right? So you produce, uh, you produce much more organic food, but if people don't increase their consumption, the price crashes, and that is terrible news for farmers. Uh, and so we have had this approach in Europe of trying to make an industry in, in an ideological image, but it's bad for consumers, it's bad for farmers, and it's not science-based. So, uh, yeah, organic farming is just one of the examples of where that's the case. And, and one thing that, that you've written a lot about is uh, the different laws and restrictions uh, specifically on genetically modified organizations, GMOs. And uh, I think most people have been inundated uh, with, you know, a lot of documentaries on Netflix, uh, a lot of hashtags and things about how 
GMOs are terrible. Um, you know, if we ingest it, we're changing our physiology inside. Uh, you know, at, at some point, I probably bought some of this propaganda. But uh, uh, what what is that debate about GMOs? And I know a lot of people point to this this uh, ridiculous corn maize study with mice or something like this. Uh, what is sort of the the overall view of GMOs, uh, both in Europe and then kind of around the world? It's a broad question, but ultimately we have a huge problem on our hand. We have we have uh, changing climate all over the planet, and we have we need to. Uh, feed more people, right? So the question is, how do we do this? How do we use less water and less land and produce more food? And genetic engineering has this, has been the answer of how to do this. Now, the scientific process is, 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 is complicated. But what I think is very staggering to me is that back in the 60s, we used to radiate food. We call that mutagenesis. So we would radiate uh, uh, seeds and we would kind of see, oh, what happens, right? So there was no, there was no checks on that whatsoever. And many of these foods are still available. The reason, the reason your, your, your apples are so you know, nice and sweet and, and look so round and red is not because they naturally appear like this. If you look at wild, uh, wild apples, they are very sour and they're unedible. So we, we changed these foods. What we did with genetic engineering is basically taking the whole process to a lab and doing it and, and specifically knowing what we are actually changing in the DNA of these, of these foods. So it's considerably more precise but for some reason, it's more hated upon. Now, interestingly, this process of mutagenesis that I was just describing is still used in organic farming today, but it is, the precise technology is not allowed in conventional farming in Europe. Now, we did, um, together with the Genetic Literacy Program at the Consumer Choice Center, together with them, we did a gene editing regulation tracker. So gene editing is the newest type of technology with which we can already cure cancers now. So very promising in medicine, just as promising in agriculture. And we did a tracker and we found out that Canada and the United States rank very highly on this ranking uh, when it comes to Ooh. regulatory leniency, uh, being, uh, being nice to the scientific community and allowing them to uh, find the innovations for the future. Unfortunately, in Europe, that hasn't really caught on and we're still, we're still behind. And I think this is unfortunately a common theme for Europe. We're always just a bit behind and we, we benefit of the innovations of America and uh, and then just take the moral high ground on whatever we think is like a caution. Who speaks real English now, Bill? Ha ha ha. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll that... take, take your Uber invasion, but we're not going to take you. Bizim şu andaki operasyonumuzu. The Turkish censors are working hard time to make sure Bill doesn't get heard on the program. <laughs> Erdogan is is personally intervening to disrupt Bill's connection. I, oh, we, we do still have him. So on that note of, uh, of the perception of GMOs, I know in the UK, there was a whole hoopla about chlorinated chicken. And I dug into it a little bit. And it really just, for me, it looked just like old-fashioned anti-Americanism wrapped into agricultural policy. Uh, how much do you think that that mindset plays into the European understanding of genetic modification and all of the great innovations that you're talking about, which traditionally come from or are pioneered by the United States? Well, I'm not the first person to make this, uh, this statement. Um, connection has actually now freed Turkish senses. But when Europeans go to the United States, they, uh, you know, they eat in restaurants and they don't have a problem whatsoever. Um, but Europe, they don't 
what's from the United States, what's and you are right, there's a certain anti-Americanism associated with um, and also some propaganda on like whatever Frankenfood is a trade agreement that the United States and the European Union want to conclude. And this was equally a problem with the agreement signed. There's a discussion of agriculture. We don't want food coming from North America uh, going, to, going to Europe. And I think this is going to stay a problem unless there is a big awakening uh, on science in Europe. Well, the science revolution, um, which, again, uh, of course, started in Europe, will have to be renewed. Um, so you can definitely read all of Bill's works on that. We'll link to that into our show notes on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. We are here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM, broadcasting from Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, beautiful talk radio in the, in the southeast. Bill, I don't know. If you, have you done talk radio before in the States? I wonder if this is your, your grand debut or not. I think you've been on once or twice really neat. I mean, it exists to an extent in the UK, but in most of Europe, you won't even be finding a station that plays anything else than pop music, unfortunately. Oh, that's cool. All right. Well, we, um, you know, we're close to Glenn Beck's numbers. You know, I, I think we're, we're trailing a bit <laughs> there, but uh, cool that your message got there too. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, so what are your uh, sort of favorite topics apart from from agriculture uh, to cover? Because I think I, I brought up the American publications before because I know you've been quite vociferous um, also in the American press. Uh, you know, you're, you're someone who is um, a very, uh, I will say, astute political observer. Uh, you're part of documentaries that you're called into uh, that are, you know, secret documentaries that people uh, fly you in, everything's hush-hush, and then, uh, you know, you give these grand interviews about big political topics. You know, what, what are the other topics that you like to cover, too, apart from agriculture? Policy policies are Consumer Choice Center topic 101, right? I mean, it's the, the idea that too big of a soda or too much or drink too much, and this has been a topic that I've addressed in publications such as Newsmax and the Washington Examiner, um, where, where some of my, my content has been published. So, it's uh, it, up, and, up and down whatever thing they want to ban that week. And I think you've been, you've been discussing quite a bit of that on, 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 on the radio station here before. So, yeah, uh, vaping also quite a bit. I'm a, I'm a vapor myself, as you can see. So um, I, uh, I, I think there's great innovations and there's great alternatives on the market. But all too often, government stands in the way of consumers choosing the right alternatives for them. Yeah, I, I don't I, look. Um, I'm not going to protest you on that, Bill. I think you've been doing a great job. It's uh, awesome that you're a part of the team and able to kind of churn out so much. That's why I called you Bill the Machine Viets. You know, if anyone uh, has caught up on Bill's columns, he's he's put out a, a good amount on his website as well. Over I, the last prefer, years. I prefer. I prefer like the machine. Bill, you want to do no, something else? I, I I prefer Bill the Science Guy. Bill by the Science Guy. That that for me is just a lot better. I, I, I had, we had this whole escapade. We went to Luxembourg on a trip together with David and Yal, and I was being called Bill the Science Guy. Bill the Science Guy. Bill, 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 Bill. Science rules. Inertia is a property of matter. Science. Reimagining <laughs> science. Yeah, that's true. And, and that was good. That was fun times. Um, you know, for all of our listeners, you, you know that we have 
spoken about cannabis legalization and smart cannabis policy. Uh, you know, Bill Vietz was, was the guy. He was our man in, uh, in Luxembourg there who was holding our hand, uh, you know, shepherding us to meetings, giving the introductions in, in the beautiful Luxembourgish language. And uh, you got a couple newspaper hits out of it, even got a little TV mention. So we, we had some fun there. I think most people probably don't know about Luxembourg. Um, yeah, actually, yeah, what's that like, Luxembourg? Tell us a little bit about that. Most people don't really know. Um, obviously, we've been because we were able to go and, uh, you know, you held our hand and, and showed us the nice restaurants and everything. But, you know, what's it like for an outside person? And once the borders open up, I think a lot of people are going to want to go. Well, I mean, there's still... Um, Luxembourg is, I think, in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin today because a lot of our people obviously uh, left to go to the United States uh, back, uh, well, more than 100 years ago, but still. Um, no, Luxembourg is a tiny monarchy uh, uh, between Germany, France, and Belgium. Uh, if you take a world map, you'll be hard to find it. If you take a Europe map, you might find it. It's very, very small. Uh, I mean, it, I think it's about the size of Rhode Island. I'm not quite sure. I'm not good in geography, but it's not very large at all. Uh, so uh, yeah, and we're multilingual. So this English is my fourth language. So our mother tongue is Luxembourgish, and then we learn German and French, and then English a bit later. Um, so so that's a great advantage. Obviously, uh, it's uh, it's it's a degree in itself to already speak these languages. Now now I'm sounding like I'm bragging, but but yeah, it, it's it's a huge asset when traveling the the world. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's, uh, so when you, as you were mentioning, uh, so Luxembourg is actually legalizing cannabis eventually, I think the government at least has announced it will legalize cannabis. And so we, we went to Luxembourg and, uh, it was, it was great to have David there because David has, um, this polite Canadian way. <laughs> I remember we were talking to politicians and some of them were mentioning some of the ideas that they have as to how to legislate about cannabis. And. David was able to tell them in a very Canadian way that that's a very bad idea um, because it has failed in Canada. I'm not sure if David, you want to elaborate on that, but I, yeah. I remember yeah. these conversations. Were very sorry, bad. bud, not a good idea. Yeah, the oh, uh, you, you know, sorry, buddy, but um, that's a terrible idea, and I'll tell you why. Okay, if you if you just give me a few moments here. Uh, uh, no, I mean it was that was actually quite a trip. I mean, in terms of talking to health officials in Luxembourg. The big takeaway for, that I got um, is that, and I think this is pretty universal across the board, is that a lot of politicians are in over their head on a lot of these policy questions. Um, so, I mean, the one hilarious example that you were alluding to, Bill, was uh, reminding legislators that there are other ways to consume cannabis that doesn't involve smoking. So, vaping it, you can eat it, um, you can have it in a beverage. Uh, and that just seemed to be something completely foreign. Like, here, the, here are these otherwise very smart people um, creating legislation, uh, but creating legislation and failing to realize that people can have cannabis beverages and people can have cannabis infused into various food items and, and things like that. And just to see some kind of senior health officials' eyes light up as you remind them that there are alternative means of consumption was, uh, I mean, it was enlightening because it was great to make an impact, but then at the same time, it was just so incredibly depressing because you realize that on all of these other policy questions, unless there are folks like us in the room, uh, a lot of these things get missed. And that's been kind of what I've been talking about in terms of the Canadian experience and all of the 
really, really silly mistakes that Canada has made. But uh, I will say this, the big takeaway from traveling with you two is that I feel like an absolute idiot because here you two are cycling through four or five different languages at a time. And I'm that kind of ignorant North American just being like, uh, English, please. Thank you. So it's North American privilege though. It's, it's not a bad thing. Cause I, uh, one thing I've noticed from living here is, you know, people want to, they want to be able to speak to you in your language too. So, you know, True. a lot of people are going to be pandering to you and, you know, David was getting his feet rubbed in the airport, you know, all these kind of normal things. Obviously. Yes. No, that's what they do in India. Instead, uh, you get, you get your own little personal, um, waiter who's there to help you wash your hands in the bathroom and yeah that's no joke you guys will have fun um so i wanted I did, to i did once i was once able to get a back massage in hong kong that was cool that was pretty great they had the whole like lounge set up it was awesome this was portion fantastic. of the program has been censored um <laughs> not, not that type not that type of massage <laughs> okay yeah all right i want to transition to a couple things that have been happening in the news we would not be a a weekly show if we didn't hit upon the big themes no. uh want to get you guys's expertise y'all's expertise if i could use the local vernacular uh we had our big conventions in the united states and um they tell us every every four years this is the most important election of our lifetimes um you know maybe that's true not sure not the best judge uh, wondering what you guys thought, uh, if you saw any any clips, takeaways, uh, things from either the Democratic or, or now the Republican convention. I think maybe Wednesday, tonight's the night, last night. I don't really know. Um, but I'm wondering if you guys caught any glimpses of that, if you got any uh, any feedback, uh, any, any kind of uh, virulent hate or, or praise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, lots to say. Uh, I'll go I'll go with the Republicans right now because – who on earth decided that Charlie Kirk was how you were going to open up the convention? You couldn't have picked a worse, a worse D-list political celebrity than Charlie Kirk to open up the convention. And unfortunately, I mean, usually these things are in person, so there's like thousands of people. And this is supposed to be, I mean, I go back to John Kerry's convention where Barack Obama basically was like, that was when he was put on people's radar. And it was like, ooh, this is, this is the guy. Like, he's going to have a bright future. The, both conventions really didn't have that. I would say that Tim Scott was, was particularly good in terms of being uh, forward-thinking. I, I, I have a hard time understanding his support for Trump, but he's generally a quite, quite a reasonable and intelligent person. And a son of the South from neighboring South Carolina. Gotta say it. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't know who picked Charlie Kirk to lead off. I have no idea why so many people with the last name Trump were speaking at the convention. Usually you have other people who can vouch for you other than your kids, um, which seems strange to me. yeah, uh, it was a tough look. It was a tough look. I don't know. I don't know what the coverage was like in Europe, Bill. Uh, does that get any any play, or is that or, or Europeans kind of shielding themselves from the monstrosity that was uh, was the DNC and RNC? Well, I think what is so interesting about these conventions, and I mean, you guys eclipse my knowledge of American politics, obviously. But um, here in Europe, when you have a political convention. This is where the party meets and decides on the platform and goes into the nitty gritty and all the members, they vote on individual 
proposals and so on. In the United States, it seems to be more of a show. Uh, and I think that's specifically what happened at the RNC. But I found more interesting with the DNC convention, and I, and I, know, I know that some uh, uh, TV channels have made fun of some of the people who have appeared on that. But, but I think it was good because at least you know, individual members could appear and there were like panels of people who were completely unknown, which is why these things go on for such a long time. And, uh, and I think that's a good use of these conventions. I mean, if you want to just have a platform to have your candidate speak, you can do that any day. But I think if there is a political party that groups people together who have a common vision as to what to do, and I mean, American politics is more than just the presidency. There's so many municipal offices and so on. Well, they should have a platform where also outsiders can listen in and see what they have to say. And I think that's a good use of, 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 a, of, a, of a party convention. Mm-hmm. What you see in the clips and the, the summaries and the highlights, I mean, that's just sound bites. I'm not, I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to get from that as opposed to, you know, watching the daily coverage anyway. Yeah, yeah. And the big thing for, the big thing for, for me in terms of the DNC was this uh, try, trying to frame Joe Biden as both the moderate and the progressive, which I can understand on why they're doing that. But I think he runs the risk. I mean, he's, he's definitely campaigning on the I'm not Donald Trump uh, platform, which I understand. But I worry that by trying to brand himself as both the moderate and the progressive, he runs the risk by trying to be all things to all people. He runs the risk of being nothing basically to everybody and not having enough substance for people to really want to switch their vote. Because, I mean, there's a huge class of voters who voted twice for Obama, who then voted for Trump. I mean, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, et cetera. I don't know if what they see in the DNC is enough for those folks to go, okay, Joe is our, our guy. Um, I, yeah. I think he's a better candidate than, than the president, um, despite his flaws, but I'm not sure if someone who's in that demographic would see it that way. And I don't know. I, I mean, maybe it was just because it was all done via Zoom and these kind of coordinated videos and things like that, that you didn't really get that impact or that punch. Uh, But it did leave me kind of wanting more because usually you watch these conventions and you're like, okay, this is how the election is going to shape up. This is like, we we now know, like, this is what the red team stands for. This is what the blue team stands for this time around battle of ideas, et cetera, et cetera. For me, it just seemed like they're both trying to frame each other as not the other. Yeah. Uh, I will say with this, having, um, having been to the last two RNCs, uh, so the one that was in Tampa 2012 and then Cleveland, Ohio. Um, yeah, what a, what, a, what a nice time that was. Uh, 2016. So I will say to your point, Bill, usually these conventions, they do debate about the party platform. Um, so usually there are these like votes that happen amongst the membership and then people are able to debate about it. It was always a big thing with the Democrats last time. Uh, whether or not to put support for Israel in the platform, then they took it out and they voted back in. And there's, you know, there's always these kind of things. Should we leave Medicare for all in the platform? And there's all this kind of stuff. Uh, The Republicans this time, um, I don't know if you guys caught this story. uh, There is no new agenda. It's just like exactly what the agenda was last time. Uh, We're just going to like tack that on times two. That's it. Nothing new. It's just the Trump agenda. Probably not a good idea because, you know, the facts have kind of changed. <laughs> a couple of things have changed a little bit in the last couple of years. You know, there's a 
big uh, police reform crisis right now, big pandemic out there, you know, huge uh, budgets that are being bursted across every single state and municipality and the entire federal government, obviously. Yeah, there's a lot of that that wasn't addressed. When it comes to theater of it, I think the uh, the Republicans did a, a tad bit of a better job. I don't know if having Joe Biden interview people was like the greatest thing, uh, because then Joe Biden is basically just doing what David and I do every week. <laughs> you know, that's not a, a presidential thing. He's hosting Zoom meetings. That's, you know, that's kind of what we do. I don't see why that would be, you know, sort of a, a hit in the direction of Biden, this kind of stuff. I think it's interesting more to see who the up-and-comers are. Uh, a lot of people have their hate for uh, hashtag AOC, but I actually like her a lot. I think she's very, uh, she has a lot of magnetic energy, and she's got principles, man, principles, something that she at least stands for, and doesn't matter what the sort of opportunity of the day is, you know, she's still going to hammer on that message kind of like a Bernie Sanders. We can totally disagree with it, but these are people that you can actually mount some kind of defense against, you know, because you're debating the ideas and the philosophy. Whereas someone like Joe Biden, who has, and I sound like a Republican talking head here, who has been in Washington for 40 years, you know, in all levels of power, you know, he's been on every single side of the issue. He was like the guy who was all in on the crime bill. You know, we need more police, arresting more people, war on drugs, I'm all in. And now he's, you know, kind of changing face. This is the kind of stuff that is very hard when you're just an average voter person, right? How are you supposed to know exactly what to do? And that's why it's going to be simplified in the next couple of weeks and the next couple of months. It's going to be our, our side is trying to preserve America. The other one's trying to tear it down. Uh, it's already kind of like that. And uh, your social media feed is definitely giving you that, that, uh, that breakfast cereal every morning. And, and Bill, do you enjoy this as much as Yael and I? Like, I feel like this is like a sport for, for me. Like I will watch like, the, the prospect of a Trump-Biden debate. I'm, I'm ready. We're going to have all the food. We're probably going to barbecue, lay it all out. We're going to have He's bringing beers. out the bugles, ladies and gentlemen. It's <laughs> going to be a big, big night. It's going to be. I mean, I, lo I love that stuff just because I find it so entertaining. Um, is there that same viewpoint for Europeans? Do you guys enjoy the spectacle that is U.S. politics? Well, if you want to follow election night, then you really have to stay up late in, in, in Europe, unfortunately. So there's only a couple of nerds who really do that. Um, I mean, it's not obviously not as much of a, of a spectacle. And ultimately, um, I think what realization we also came to is that this, this spectacle of like, this is the most important election in our lifetime, it never turns out to be true. And also, if you look at the powers that a president actually has, so what a president actually can get done because ultimately it's chief of the military and then foreign policy. But then what we always see is that with Congress at odds with the presidency, a lot of things get stuck and the promises are always much bigger than, than, than the end result. So that sort of, that sort of dampens the mood uh, on, on how significant the election really is. No, but obviously you'll find people in Europe who are like all over this and then people who think they can draw comparisons and, you know, if Biden gets elected, then this will be like a renewal for uh, liberalism and free democracy in Europe. And if Trump, if Trump wins again, it's going to be, oh, we're going to go down the drain of populism. But ultimately, 
American elections doesn't they don't have much effect on what happens in in Europe overall. I feel mm. uh, people have their pres- preferences, but I don't think it has an immediate impact on what happens in Europe. So I would counter that point, and um, please uh, stop me if I'm being too pro-American. But I would say, especially if you look at a place like Canada and a lot of of policies that are written in the European Union, and and throw the UK in there. It's not necessarily that things are a reaction to American policy sometimes, but it's always like uh, the U.S. kind of goes first with certain things, either be certain legislation, certain innovations. Uh, you know, when it comes to taxing its citizens and, and passing a lot of regulations, Europe is, is already miles down the field. You know, don't worry about that. But it seems as if there's still a kind of, of push. And I don't, maybe it's in personality. You know, the um, having televised debates is something that, at least to my knowledge in Europe, was not a big thing. And then you had the European Commission debates, and it was like on TV, and it was like this American-style thing. Of course, they had to do it in four languages and have the guys debating in French and German and English and all this stuff. Um, But, uh, you know, I I do see that carry over. I don't know if it's the American uh, temperance and the way of doing politics, or if it's, you know, a lot of the ideas, I would hope a lot more ideas uh, kind of would be exported, you know, specifically individual rights, appreciation for free markets, which at least, you know, for the moderate part of both Democrat and Republican Party is kind of, you know, fait accompli. that's what we both agree on, right? There's, you don't have a socialist party that's like a huge part of your voting block necessarily. I don't know if you'd agree with me, Bill, if you want to push back on that. I push back on the on the on the on the EU Commission debates because th- those went nowhere. I mean, nobody really watched them, and nobody was interested in them. Maybe because they don't have the same punch, and there's no zingers in there. I suppose that's what's what people would 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 want to watch. But um, it, European politics is is very different, mostly also because most of our voting systems are not adversarial. So what you see in the House of Commons, where you have the two big parties and they yell at each other. In most European parliaments, you don't really have that. Most parties are, they, there's like eight, nine parties in parliament. They all have to work together. And they still don't yell too much at the opposition because next time around, they might have to work together. And, and I mean, the, 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 the biggest example of that is Switzerland, where all parties are in government. But I mean, this happens all over the continent. So we have a less adversarial function. And there's less of this demonizing of, uh, of, of the political opponent. I, I don't want to be like the grandstanding, like the moral high ground. No, Europeans have like a better discussion culture. Because I wish sometimes we would yell at each other and actually line out the differences that we have, uh, as opposed to trying to pretend like we're all the same. Will the um, Honorable and, Prime yeah. Minister Bill Witz admit to what he did last <laughs> week in the Parliamentary Committee on Veterans? Yes. <laughs> I, uh, another point, I, uh, counterpoint. Um, one thing I, I've noticed a lot more in the European side of things is that parties are so entrenched in society, right? Like people hold membership cards and they're serious about it and they pay their dues. Mostly it seems in um, the North American countries, David could correct me too. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, parties are there. They're just kind of like a vehicle of the ideas of the moment. Whereas in Europe, it's like, you're a member of this party and it defines your life and your friend group and like where you get your car fixed and, you know, what restaurants you go to. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, here in Europe, it's uh, the parties, actually political parties are many constitutions. The constitution of my country has uh, specifically says that the, the, the democracy, the democratic process of the country is expressed by the political parties. Um, they are, the political parties are what makes the democracy is at least a presumption that we have 
I mean, in some countries it depends. I mean, if in, in the post in the post socialist uh, uh, countries, holding a uh, holding a party membership card actually still gets you even like advantages, you know, because if you connect it to the party, you get advantages here and there. Um, and but yeah, so we even have in the news sometimes we get these news like party membership is down. How is this a problem for democracy and so on? Uh, so this is actually yeah, you you're right on that. Interesting. Yeah, I've I've always been weary of the idea that being a member of a political party is the be all and end all because i think that what happens I, and i i would say that you do you somewhat see this in canada but you certainly see it in the us because it's really a binary choice between republicans and democrats and you know that there are like republican households and democratic households and people who vote the same way their parents did because they always have that really mostly comes down to a values thing uh, or, or I used to think it was a values thing really until the Trump era. And now it just seems to be a partisan, almost like, um, like cheering, cheering for a sports team, which is, I mean, I'm a diehard Toronto Maple Leafs fan, completely irrational. Um, and unfortunately you see a lot of people dive into politics in that same way. Um, on the note of, of kind of trends and things like that. One thing I want to ask you, Bill, about is, the crazies in Europe, because you guys do have, you guys have like the far left crazies and then you have the really far right crazies. Um, I'll, I won't te- I won't kind of preface that anymore. I'll let you explain what that looks like. But I mean, we, we kind of got a firsthand look at some of that when we were in Europe, but yeah, explain to our listeners what the ends of the political spectrum look like uh, in terms of people who are represented in parliament. Well, the question very, very often is whether the ends or whether it's a you, because the far left and the far right agree on more than they often want to admit. I remember even that uh, the last presidential election in France, the, the far right was handing out leaflets comparing their positions to the far left and saying, yeah, we agree on 90% of the issues. We want less immigration, we want, I mean, all for different reasons, but, but their policy prescriptions are very often the same, more tariffs, less free trade and all of that. So... Yeah, I mean, crazies, uh, crazies is, is definitely what we have uh, enough of. And actually, um, when I hear the description in the United States of far right and or fascism and so on, and I and I compare that to what we have in Europe, they would have to step in, <laughs> up a notch in the U.S. because ours are really, you know, you have people in the European Parliament who would do a Nazi salute. Um, that is that that is still a thing that exists. So. And in some countries, unfortunately, this is not a fringe issue whatsoever. In Slovakia, for the longest time, the Nazi party used to be the third largest party uh, and the Communist Party second, right? So these extremes uh, do exist. Um, whether, they are, um, whether they become a real threat in Europe has always depended on, uh, on economics. So what is the economic uh, situation of a country? Uh, what is the income level? What is the purchasing power of consumers? Because when that goes down, consumers look for very radical and desperate uh, solutions, and then they, they opt for extremist parties. And so, yeah, we have we have a continuing, uh, ongoing problem with that. And and I think I've always been very optimistic that this is not uh, this is not a problem in the United States uh, or in Canada because there's a different culture. There's 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 a culture of like boundaries that cannot be overstepped. In Europe, we have constitutional changes all the time. Uh, you know, whenever there is like a security threat, we change the constitution and we adapt it so that police can search your home. While in the United States, there's just largely been a different perspective and, and, and judges have been very 
vocal about defending uh, constitutional rights. Speaking so, of uh, uh, fascism, Bill, one line that uh, I could not let uh, us pass over is uh, one that you used for, um, what's her name? Le Pen uh, Marchand or whatever her name is. Uh, you called it uh, Nazism for hipsters. Which was, so I've read most of your work and I will say that that is like the cherry on top of, of the Sunday of, of, of things I've ever seen you write. That was one of my favorite um, favorite things I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a problematic feature. So the name is Marion Maréchal Le Pen. She's the niece of, of Marine Le Pen that I think most Americans and Canadians would probably know about, um, of, the, of the far-right National Front, which changed names since, but essentially is the same party. The, the, the far-right, the, the young people are very good at rebranding the movement. So they create these identitarians uh, uh, movements, that, what they call themselves, and they they have good marketing, they have good videos, they have good uh, stunts, uh, uh, media stunts that they, that they pull. So uh, it's, actually, it's actually, we have this neo-fascist movements, unfortunately, in Europe as well, that draw in people that would be completely apolitical and now suddenly get interested in this because they are concerned about crime, they're concerned about unemployment. So, uh, so unfortunately, yes, this, this is an ongoing problem. I had this piece in the, I think it was the Weekly Standard, I think, three years ago, uh, where I wrote about this Nazism for hipsters. Uh, well, good line. Yeah, well, hopefully we use that. Mad at me on <laughs> well, I'm sure you got your good amount of Twitter hate. And if you would like to send your Twitter hate uh, to Bill, he is at Bill <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, you continue following along. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM. David and I are speaking with our colleague, Bill Vietz, Senior Policy Analyst at the Consumer Choice Center. Um, you talked about, you know, the the different polarities um, I'm hearing every day, reading in the media, that uh, you know there's a, a fascist scourge uh, that's happening in the streets of the United States of America, and you know it's a really trying time for people who believe in open societies and uh, you know low L, little L, liberal uh, you know freedoms, because it seems as if every day, at least my feed is just being inundated with basically clashes of people who are LARPing like crazy. Uh, I'm sure you guys have seen this of um, a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests, which, you know, in many cities seem to be made up mostly of um, white hipsters who are, uh, you know, intimidating people on various patios who are uh, enjoying their drinks. And then you have the far right mobs in places like Portland or other places that are brandishing guns. I, I mean, I don't know if this is a, I, I would hope this is a very fringe phenomenon I think there is a lot of real grievances out there that exist. Um, it seems as if a lot of the the big stuff that's happening right now, a lot of the the violence, burning down buildings, people shouting at each other, um, sometimes wearing masks, sometimes not. Uh, it just really seems like we've lost our mind. Am I wrong? Well, it, no, I mean, it certainly feels like people have lost their minds. I mean, there's been these clips that have come out over the last couple of days because of the shooting of that, uh, that gentleman in Wisconsin, which was, I mean, if you see the video, he's, he's shot seven times in the back at point blank range. Um, it just, there's no way you can see that and not feel outraged. But at the same time, if we actually care about criminal justice reform, which I think the three of us do and many people in the United States do, the burning of buildings and and let's use rioting as, as the term only helps Donald Trump. I mean, Don Lemon was on CNN, I think two days ago, 
and you could like see the sweat beating off his forehead. And he's like, guys, <laughs> it's, it, it's in the polling. I mean, nothing Donald Trump has done has resonated with voters, except for the fact that he's against these riots and burning down these buildings. And so like, of course, that's going to benefit Trump. And it's almost as if the people who are doing these things don't realize that they're actively helping the person that they want to stop because every time you burn down a target middle-class voters in suburbia are going to go okay well the democrats are maybe in favor of that or at least not vocally opposed to it and trump has at least been consistent on being opposed to it um although his language on it has been problematic uh, why can't they hit, you know, why can't they hit a Sears or something that no one goes to anymore? Because uh, so the, they're the, all bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. So the the, fel- the fellow who was shot, by the way, Jacob Blake, and that was in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, which I, I've been to, and uh, that that town is currently ablaze. Um, probably when this this program goes out, it's still going to be ablaze, and there's still going to be uh, protest and people, you know, out uh, to disorder and um, yeah, change things up. I, I mean, I really hope that people realize that um, the, the best reason not to set a building on fire is not only so that a person doesn't get reelected. I, I, hope, I hope that's the realization everybody comes to. I always feel that, you know, I've been to a couple of protests myself and a couple of them have been successful in, in their demands. And, and it's important that you have a demand. Ultimately, I'd love for there to be comprehensive uh, like legislation being put forward, how to solve these issues. And then people can say, yes, uh, Congress approve legislation number this and that, because then you actually, like, you know what you are protesting for, and you can clearly distance yourself from those people because you say, hey, this is our actual objective. We can distinguish ourselves from the people who are violent. But if you go out on the street and with no specific demand as to what needs to happen, then I, I, it's, it's always difficult to know who to support and 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 who is actually on your side? Because I, I think as we all are, we don't, we don't want law enforcement to overstep. I mean, I'd be the first person to, to dislike law enforcement that oversteps its boundaries. Um, but in order to achieve that, there needs actual changes to happen. And I think that's sort of what has been missing. Um, yeah. I know there have been some proposals to end qualified immunity, which um, when I read up on it, it's actually a terrible, it's actually a terrible standard in the United States. I mean, it gives law enforcement way too much leverage in, 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 uh, you know, when people want to take them to court. So, um, so I think there needs to be existential demands because then that's where you get people on board who maybe don't want to join you in the streets, but they actually will vote for the politicians that will make the changes that you think are important. Yeah. And that brings me back to a funny tweet that there was like a, a news story about some building being burnt down and then someone retweeted it with a comment that said, guys, all we wanted was for police to be held accountable. Or, or the the image of uh, it, it was in Wisconsin where you have this entire building burning and there's a church that was also set ablaze and you know in the marquee was written Black Lives Matter you know so yeah um, you think yeah. you're on the right side but yeah and and that's it's been very bad to see and um, I I made no secret of it that I'm uh, hopping on a plane tomorrow so uh, by the time this goes out border police I will already be in the country so you can't stop me yeah. uh, but, but uh, I'm I. I kind of worried you know that i was i would be there you know i'm, I'm going to be you know around the area of charlotte and charlotte has had its own uh its own huge riots and protests and uh you know a lot of buildings 
not set ablaze in the same way we're seeing now, but definitely uh, glass smashed everywhere, cars beaten in, cars flipped over. Uh, you know, this is this kind of disorder doesn't really help anyone. And uh, the people who point this out, uh, oftentimes, like the data engineer from Silicon Valley who pointed to this study showing that as soon as uh, protests go violent, uh, they have less political support and they actually prefer nonviolent protest. Uh, you know, he tweeted that out and got fired. Uh, so it's <laughs> who knows what the, uh, yeah. what, what the onus will be next. And, and on the flip side of that, I will say, so we've talked about, let's call them, for lack of a better word, left-wing protesters. There are peaceful ones and then there are rioters. But for conservative pundits, digging up the arrest warrants or the arrest records of these people who have been shot by law enforcement, stop doing that because it's a complete non sequitur and it happens every time. And the same cast of stooges comes out and it's like, oh, well, George Floyd was once arrested for assault. It's like that has no bearing on whether he deserved to have an officer kneel on his neck for eight minutes and 47 seconds. It's completely irrelevant. They'd be like, oh, well, that guy stole a box of cigars once. It's like, that, that doesn't warrant the death penalty. You don't get to shoot a man in the back as he's walking away because of some other offense that he may have done. Uh, and that's, I mean, not, not just so that it's, it's clear, obviously these protests are bad. But then on the flip side, the conservative commentators who just get in this cycle of trying to to brand these wrongly killed individuals as as hardened criminals as if that's even relevant to the circumstances of their death it's just gross and i yeah. really wish it would stop i i would agree with the point i think um twitter ain't real life and i think there is a lot of that that's happening especially especially on tv you know if you're watching tv you're like the least informed person in the country, <laughs> I, I, you know, you're just fed, uh, you know, whatever the, the spoon is of the day. But, it, you know, it is true that many of these areas um, have been where there are a lot of protests and there's a lot of grievances have been held mostly by Democratic mayors, uh, governors, um, county commissioners, you know, and these demands for these kind of reforms have been out for a long time. A lot of libertarian activists have talked about this stuff. I mean, Trump signed a bill not too long ago, First Step Act, uh, you know, adding on to Obama's reforms that actually addressed criminal justice reform in some way. And I think this is something that has galvanized a lot of people left and right. I think Tim Scott, uh, when he was speaking at the convention, kind of spoke to that. It's there. I think people just Maybe it's the pandemic. You know, everybody's got to wear masks. Everybody was at home for months, had nothing to do. A lot of people have lost their jobs or had their hours cut. Uh, there's, you know, a lot more room to do this kind of stuff when people don't have to work or when they've been thrown out of a job or, you know, economic prospects aren't looking good. I, it's, it's, not a, it's not a good trend. You know, open societies are good because we can peacefully exchange. And if we have disagreements, we have debates like we have here. And uh, then we put down our phones and go to sleep and everything's good. I'm not burning down Bill's house or torching David's car. But I don't know. Maybe I should. <laughs> Actually, if you torched my car, I probably wouldn't even get much insurance money for it. <laughs> It's just, oh yeah, I have I've seen this a little bit on Twitter. It's like it's you got insurance, man. What's the problem? You got insurance. It's like what? That doesn't make it okay. <laughs> like, well, you know that fun. I'm going to have to pay for more insurance because as you use insurance, you become more high risk. 
lot of people also don't understand. There's a lot of financial illiteracy out there. Ooh, that's good. We need to have more, uh, more financial courses, more uh, Dave Ramsey courses, who's also on this station. Um, so yeah, we've, I think we've, we've done, uh, you know, good, good beat around the European Union, uh, the U.S., uh, the conventions, a lot of other stuff that's happening. Uh, any other news stories that pop out to you guys? I mean, we're obviously focused on a lot of consumer issues as well. Uh, Bill mentioned a lot of his agricultural writing, and, and hopefully we can uh, discuss his paper when it comes out on sustainability and everything else. Uh, any other stories that have been top of mind for you guys? I'm not sure if it's been mentioned on this program already, but uh, wasn't it? Isn't didn't South Africa finally decide to lift their prohibition? So that's good news. Um, I think they did. I think that was they did. They did finally lift it, and we we wrote quite quite a bit about that. Um, yes, I'm not sure, if David. David, you I think you communicated the most on this issue. So uh, yeah. Yes, they did lift the ban. They they lifted prohibition, and now I guess the real test for South Africa will be what is going to happen if things get bad again? Are they going to repeat that kind of failed attempt at prohibition? Um, I hope not. I hope that maybe legislators have learned their lesson that that was just a bad idea. Um, but I, then again, I'm not that hopeful because from what I can see, the those who form government in South Africa seem to be all over the map. You have folks within the ANC who are right-minded and, and consistent and kind of clear in terms of what their policy objectives are. You have those who are just like openly corrupt and wheeling and dealing with government money and handing it to relatives. You have the opposition who, uh, who again, have both sides. Um, we've talked to, a, a, we actually had one member of, of parliament, uh, Willie O'Comp, who was particularly sharp from the opposition um, to the ANC, the DA, um, so it'll be interesting to see what they do. I think, I hope that our impact in terms of our push in South Africa is that uh, legislators think twice about doing that again if if the pandemic gets worse. Um, and if not, that consumers have been mobilized and citizens have been mobilized to uh, to push back on the ground if that happens again. Because, I mean, it's just... To think that prohibition works, I think, is really naive. And to think that it's going to work in a pandemic is, is just downright stupid. Or so. the 21st century, you know, where people have yeah. access to black markets online or elsewhere. And th this is the prohibition on both tobacco and alcohol uh, throughout Correct. the pandemic, which is an insane policy. And if you've ever been to South Africa, you know, this is not a you – know, there are a lot of institutions, you know, that are there. There has been a lot of influence. You know, Western political thought has – permeated a lot of the institutions and, you know, they have parliaments and they have some measure of accountability, but, you know, this is a place that has been run by very corrupt people for a while. You know, they're, they've had load shedding in South Africa for a long time. So, you know, this is, if you're just hanging out in Cape town, you can expect between two and four, you know, the, the electricity is just cut out. There's no electricity. So you, you're just, you have no option, no internet. Uh, if you're in restaurants, they know that it's happening. So they'll like pre-cook real quick or they'll switch on to their little generator just so they know all this. And the load shedding only exists because they're, the, the government mandated that they export a lot of the electricity to some of the other African nations. And there's all this kind of stuff. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of great partner organizations that are doing good stuff in South Africa and uh, hopefully leading the charge uh, for consumer choice because, man, that's a, that's a battle. It's, it's just like California. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, quick pivot on that. Isn't that exactly happening in California right now? Actually, yes. Power's out. Yeah. Well, uh, they have these rolling brownouts uh, or blackouts where they're cutting people's power. And that's not the party goers. I know they've been doing that where they've shut down. If you if you have an illegal party, the uh, the mayor of L.A. will cut off your power and water. <laughs> to your house oh but if uh this is it speaks to the elite thing uh, i saw a, another story about i think the vmas the the mt is it vh1 i don't know who does vmas oh whatever. yeah yeah yeah. the mtv so, video music awards or whatever so essentially new york has this rule whereby anyone coming from out of state uh needs to quarantine for two weeks but apparently the celebrities who are flying in for this gala this uh, extravaganza are exempt from such rules uh the rules are not meant for me <laughs> Yeah. And, and so the thing, I, I don't think that people realize how damaging that hypocrisy is because every time we have a story like this, somebody tweets saying, Oh, okay. So because these people are rich and famous, this was fine, but I couldn't go to my grandfather's funeral. And, and as soon as you have that disparity between ordinary people and the rich and the famous, for lack of a better term, it just creates this really toxic resentment towards who the rules apply to and who they don't. And how do you get people to to respect the good rules if you're going to be all over the map in terms of how you apply it? And uh, that's one thing I don't think, um, whether it's Cuomo in New York or whoever, I don't know who makes that decision on whether they get exempt from the rules, but uh, I don't think that They've they have accounted for the the really toxic culture that that creates, and it's uh, a class thing, you know. And I think that that's something that a lot of the, I would say, modern socialist writers, you know, people who write for Jacobin magazine, this kind of stuff. One thing I think they're they're pretty spot on on is is a lot of these issues and problems and societal problems are mostly class. They're not really based on race, you know, as much as it is just against low income people. You know, when you have taxes on vaping or tobacco or alcohol, you know, that disproportionately impacts low-income people, you know, and, and a lot of these uh, policies that are put together, you know, they're, they're the ones that are hurt. Uh, it's interesting that the many socialists in California are against the anti-contracting AB5 law for that very reason, because it hurts poorer people, you know, but uh, you wouldn't say that from, from the large political class. By the way, it's been an awesome, uh, awesome hour talking with you guys. Uh, Consumer Choice Radio broadcasting here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM as we do every week. Uh, we do want to give uh, some time to Bill. Bill, uh, what can we look forward from you uh, here the next couple of weeks? And, and what else would you like to tell the listeners? Well, as I announced, uh, I'll have a uh, very soon I'll have a policy paper on sustainability. You can find that on consumerchoicecenter.org. I'll be more focused on Europe, but there's a lot of interesting uh, facts and nuggets in there I'm interested in, in food and agriculture and food safety. And other than that, I think my message would just be that people should get a bit along more and don't set any cars on fire because I don't think that's productive. Good man, Bill. Thank you, Bill the Machine Vietz. Uh, again, you can follow him at Vietz Bill. We'll link to that in our show notes. And uh, I think it's been a great program, David. Um, I'm going to toss it off to you. Yeah, another great week. Um, thank you for all of our listeners who are tuning in on the radio. Thank you for everyone who uh, tunes in wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Spotify uh, the, or the Apple uh, podcast store. 
if you are tuning in online, remember to like, uh, subscribe, and rate our podcast. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, uh, or even hate mail, feel free to email us or shoot us a tweet on Twitter. Um, if you have any negative comments, I can guarantee you I've heard worse. Uh, the, the recent wealth tax article I, I wrote in the Financial Post in Canada got a lot of hate. And so uh, if you don't like what we're talking about on the podcast, bring it. Because uh, I've seen pretty much everything you can see on the internet. Um, so, uh, yeah, all things bad. On a more serious note, thank you again for uh, tuning in. We appreciate it. And we will talk to you all next week. Baby, now we got